Hello, everyone. This is a Livable Future podcast and the first episode in a two-part series exploring global partnerships and climate action. We're talking with two scientists from the YA Network, which prepares students to participate in international climate negotiations. Hi, my name is Cody Sanford. And I'm Katie Barker, and we are the co-creators of the Livable Future podcast. Today's Earth Day and a big day for climate negotiations. President Biden is hosting 40 world leaders on a climate summit, and the U.S. said that it would cut greenhouse gas emissions by 50 percent. It's big climate news. Yes, and leading up to today, it was exciting to hear that Mr. Kerry from the U.S. met with Chinese President Mr. Xi last week, and the two countries have agreed to work together to reduce emissions before 2030. Together, the U.S. and China account for 43% of the world's carbon dioxide emissions. So that's pretty big. You know, that really highlights how important global partnerships are. It's a global problem, and it's going to take the global community to learn, adapt, and find creative solutions for the climate crisis. For sure. To explore the importance of global partnerships, Cody and I sat down with two scientists from the Youth Environmental Alliance in Higher Education Network, or the YAN Network for short. Before we go further, you should listen to this discussion. Wait, is it yay or is it yeah? It's both. Or, or I think it's I don't know. one of those like tomato tomato things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah is helping students studying environmental science participate in the international sphere to empower them to address complex global environmental problems through a transdisciplinary and transcultural lens. The, the YAN Network has embraced the move to online learning by hosting three virtual conferences. This allows students to present their research to each other no matter where they're at on the globe. It's pretty sweet. Dr. Gillian Bowser is the principal investigator of the YAN Network and associate professor at Colorado State University and is thoroughly immersed in the multicultural dynamics of climate negotiations. Sarah Whipple is a Ph.D. candidate studying with Dr. Bowser and has attended multiple climate summits as a part of the YAN Network, both of whom sat down to discuss the creation of YAN and the importance of cultural context in climate negotiations. So, Dr. Bowser... When you were coming up with the YAN Network as a solution to getting students to think in transdisciplinary and transcultural terms about environmental issues, was there some sort of aha moment when you decided how you would approach this goal? Um, not really. I mean, writing a grant is probably anything but an aha moment. <laughs> As Sarah can now attest, I mean, you That's really funny. have to you have to slog your way through to create the platform for an aha moment. So, I like to think our goal in Ye is to bring you students together to have an aha moment. You know, so that's what this new conference that we're trying to get funded is all about. It's you know. Our job as the professors is to open the doors and allow you students the opportunities to meet interculturally and to meet, um, you know, as institutions and to have your own aha moment. Um, but the grant itself is the mechanism to provide that opportunity. And I think that's, you know, my personal experience is those are the, those are grants 
that there's really the purpose of a proposal and funding is to create the opportunities for an aha moment, even whether it's an invention, a vaccine or whatever, you're writing the vaccine to do something or writing the grant to do something and you're hoping for an aha, but you don't write a proposal on an aha, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So yay in, for, in part formed itself by trying to think about, wow, we all really think about these things really differently. And how can we help our students get to that kind of exciting space? And it is exciting when you realize that countries simply think about things differently and understanding where your culture plays a role and then how we have to to value everybody's cultural perspectives to get to an environmental solution um, is is just so important because everybody's perspectives do, do matter. Dr. Bowser goes into more detail on the teaching philosophy of the Yay Network. I think the best mentoring approach is especially because technology is changing so fast. And I know Sarah always gets the giggles because I'll suggest something and I have absolutely no idea how to use it. But I figure, wow, this is going to be great. Go figure it out. <laughs> That's funny. Um, but I think my job is to see the potential and open the door and get out of the way. And I think those are actually three steps of mentoring that um, we need to do now more than ever, in partly because this generation, so to speak, is more hyper-connected. Um, so the opening the door and getting out of the way is, is really a part of the process. Citizen science, you know, the potential of citizen science is amazing. You know, to open the door f- to allow students to use citizen science to answer all sorts of questions is, you know, something, you know, that I can do as a scientist. But then I need to get out of the way um, because the technology is changing faster than my own mindset. And in citizen science, this is a particular problem. And, and we usually talk about this in class. I don't know why we have it this time or, or we talk about it with our students um, that we take into the field. But, you know, your, your cell phone has changed dramatically. I mean, so dramatically, it's, it's, it's sort of scary how fast it's changed in the last couple of years, in the last five or 10 years. But the one most important change is, and I probably won't get the story quite right, but it, it's based on a woman who drowned in her car. Um, I don't know if you guys may know this story. Um, she drove a car off a bridge and was calling the police dispatchers from her cell phone. And this is quite a while ago. Um, not actually not actually all that long ago. Um, but the police dispatch couldn't locate her. Um, so she died. And the family had the you know, this act that was named after which I'm drawing a blank on, which is a simple fact that your cell phone always knows where it is, whether you choose for that to happen or not. But when it gets to citizen science, it means I can accurately place species on a map in space and time. So now I can start asking other questions. The minute I can know where that species is in place and time accurately, you can ask all sorts of questions based on that occurrence of species. And the second thing is that, you know, your cell phone takes pretty amazing pictures, um, really amazing pictures. So taxonomic detail that you can get on a cell phone is just eye-popping. You know, what what we can do with our cell phones is scarily close to what we can do with a macro lens on a camera and getting closer by the day. So a macro, a big DSLR, camera that we use in the field um, can still get better depth of field than a cell phone is and can still do better light than a cell phone, but cell phones are getting close. 
so that, that means we can get taxonomic detail to accurately identify species in the field. So why do we need to get out of the way? Because taxonomists still don't believe in cell phone data. <laughs> you know, they still want to argue about whether species can be accurately identified from pictures. Or what a specimen, you know, versus just maybe we train people for what they need to take a picture of to begin with. And so that's what a lot of what Sarah does, you know, you need to take a picture of the face or you need to take a picture of the upside, the, the lower side, you need to get these sets of pictures so we can identify the species with a picture. Um, but a lot of taxonomists are very resistant to that. So you see a lot of resistance to using citizen science data um, as a way for inventory and monitoring, but we need to use it. We cannot answer a global question without global sets of eyes on it. You know, so that's a long answer. But Sarah, Sarah may have a sure different answer on those three things. Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to mentoring the next generation of scientists, um, my philosophy is really that I am not, um, you know, a leader or someone that's telling them what to do, but that I am engaged and learning um, at the same rate and experiencing the same um, opportunities and, you know, doing the, the data collection, doing the analysis, whatever it may be on the same playing field, because I think that really promotes a level of um, teamwork and, you know, collaboration, and it leads to a, a lot more of an equitable team, um, you know, where everyone feels like they have a voice and they can, you know, focus on their personal interests and really be the best team player that they may be. And so, you know, as I look forward to um, eventually graduating and ho hopefully having know a lab of my own where I can continue to mentor students and so forth I really see that you know being at that same playing field and having that compassion for all of the hurdles that students may have to jump through or experiences that they may have to um, be involved in in order to get to their long-term goals um, and you know sympathizing with that and helping where as Gillian said, you know, opening the door and then getting out of the way, um, I think is is really important. But being at that same level of understanding um, and being willing to out of um, leadership and effort is really important as well. Next, we shifted to talking about the future. The easiest answer is, you know, I, I would say eyes wide open. I think the more that we can train students to um, be aware of their own cultural heritage. I don't necessarily like the term privilege, but you know, whatever your cultural heritage is, and that can be very complex on how you ended up with whatever cultural heritage you got. But recognizing that and celebrating when each of those heritage of your colleagues and friends might be a little bit different. Because, you know, and I think that's what Sarah was alluding to, when you get to an international negotiation, um, you cannot avoid the heritage issue and how people approach issues. Gender is a great example of just trying to understand how different countries approach the gender issue is, is absolutely fascinating. And as I always tell students when you get to a COP itself, and like we say a lot in class, the coalitions you expect are not the coalitions you're gonna see in the COP. 
who bands together over gender issues, who bands together over fisheries issues. It's not what we're sort of taught in the United States about, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's a very different cast of characters and it changes depending on the issue. And so if we can create a future group of students that are perfectly comfortable at working across those multicultural spaces to understand that the preservation of the species, whatever the word preservation means to you, is the paramount importance. Um, so it doesn't matter where the mangrove is growing, it's that we need to preserve it, but how we preserve it will have cultural connotations with it and, and understanding that each, each culture has to address that preservation question in its own nationally determined ability and celebrating that. You know, and I think that's where Ye needs to go. And that's where I'd like hope the students who graduate from Ye are really comfortable, you know, whether it's working with the, our, our rather crazy colleagues down in Australia um, and being able to joke with them and have friend and, you know, friendships across those divides. Um, and, you know, or working with a colleague in, in China and understanding that they're coming from a different cultural heritage space than we are, but may have the same common goal of trying to preserve a bumblebee. And just trying to figure out how to navigate those spaces with grace um, and respect for all those different cultures and how they talk and be respectful of all those. Dr. Bowser details what it's like to find an international community who cares about climate action. At the international stage, it actually is super cool to discover that community. And I think Sarah has discovered a little bit of that. Um, and we sort of see why for some of us, it's very easy to get addicted to that. Um, and addicted to probably is the correct term to that ability to be in a thoroughly multicultural space um, where it reminds you to think about your own perspectives of something that is ubiquitous across all of our boundaries. You know, species don't see boundary sign. They don't know what, you know, they can't read. Um, but we tend to forget that. We act as if all of our species stops at our borders and that how we conserve a species has to actually cross borders. But we also need to understand what the term conserve means when it crosses into a different culture. It, it, it can be very different and we just don't even think about it. And we don't certainly don't do a great job of training our students about it. And where that becomes a tension point is when you start to look at something like sustainable development or global environmental agreements. You know, and that's part of why in the class we assign everybody to different countries. And because you want students to try and think about, wow, this country really doesn't think about conservation the same way I do. It's not a right or wrong. It's, it is simply different because they're a different culture. And giving the power of the culture to understand how people conserve things and why people conserve things um, is so important. And that because we don't conserve everything, we conserve things that culturally we decide to conserve. Um, and it's important to understand those differences because the ecosystem may think something totally different is important to conserve. I mean, we don't have a conservation, you know, society for the preservation of annelids <laughs> or, or even nematodes yet. Um, but ecosystem-wise, they may be the most important thing to conserve out there. So just to share a story, when I was in the National Park Service um, that we used to have, and they still sort of have, I don't know if anything survived post-COVID, um, Park Service exchanges where um, you would exchange people from different national parks worldwide. 
so when I was at Joshua Tree, we we hosted a bunch of rangers from Australia. Um, and it was super cool not too long ago to go back to Australia and meet up with them again and see, you know, where they were at and what they were doing and that kind of thing. Um, we also exchanged, we have a sister park program where parks partner with sister parks in different countries and then exchange personnel and ranges. And part of the idea is just to understand what people do, you know, in conservation of parks as a common thread. So we were on an exchange program with China um, looking at a park called Du Chayen, I'm probably mispronouncing it, I should know by now, um, which is in the central part of China near the Tibetan border. And, you know, so we come in as the National Park Service in the U.S. and we claim that Yellowstone is the, the world's first national park. And everybody likes to brag about that. And, you know, the National Parks was, you know, America's great idea, blah, blah, blah. And off we go and, you know, we'd run around saying we've got the best parks. And Australia always likes to point out that Royal Park is older than Yellowstone. Um, but never mind, we ignore them um, and still, still go on to claim that we're the oldest park. And never mind that Yellowstone is actually not the oldest park, but Hot Springs, Arkansas is even older. Um, so we should all show up from Yellowstone to China and we're in this park in the China. Um, and in the visitor center walls of this park in China, on the walls, they have a list of every species that occurs in that park in two different languages. So the walls are simply covered with this enormous taxonomic list. It's, it's kind of eye popping when you go walk in there. Wow. Everything is on the walls of this park. So finally, one of my colleagues and and you walk through the trails of this park. I and mean, this is crazy. And the trees have their birth dates on them. So all the trees have these little signs of when they were born. Um, wow. We're talking three, four. 600 years ago on these damn trees. So finally, one of my colleagues is like, so when the hell was this park founded? And the guy's like, 1050 BC. <laughs> you know? Oh my goodness. We were so out of scale um, in terms 1050 of what- 1050 BC. Yeah, it was founded by one of the emperors as a public pleasuring ground, which is technically our definition of a national park. Um, it has a Buddhist temple um, that was abandoned a thousand years ago, but it's still there. Um, but the park was actually founded as part of a floodplain, um, and this all it's, it's famous for this flood irrigation, this natural irrigation system that's set up, um, that manages itself, that was built a thousand years ago, more than a thousand years ago now, um, by one of the Chinese empires and still operates to this day. So, but the, the whole point of that story is this issue of perspective of understanding what we think of conservation is very much, we being Americans, is very much only a hundred years old when we think about Darwin discovering anything in particular. Um, but other cultures, their view of conservation is vastly different. Just just look at our new Secretary of Interior and, and, and just think about it for a second. So the new Secretary of Interior introduced herself as a 35th generation New Mexican. Let's think about that number for a moment. I know. Deb Holland, that's going to be amazing, hopefully. Yeah, but 35th generation. Long before anybody of European descent even thought America existed. And I think her point was, and it was so well said, is that knowledge about conservation is very deep in different cultures and not so deep in other cultures. And for us to get to a common understanding of global conservation, we have to acknowledge those different depths. It's not right or wrong. We simply have to acknowledge it. 
and then work across those spaces to figure out, okay, what does conservation mean for the global community? And I think that's the power she brings in by that simple statement that I'm a 35th generation, you know, just, just count the years backwards and figure out where you were. And Columbus certainly wasn't even born yet. <laughs> well, maybe or close, but it gives you that sense of conservation moves in a very different space and very different cultures. And we don't think about it or the conservation of flies. We probably couldn't get that very far, but I think it's, it's important to understand that when you get into the international stage, thinking about the, the depth of Chinese culture uh, being in the same place that we really don't give credit to given our current relationships with the nation of China. But many of the parks in China are extremely old and some of them are managed now as gardens. So what is the difference of the conservation of a garden versus the conservation of a park? We assume we know that in U.S. terms, but we don't know what that means in Chinese terms. And for us to get to sustainable development, or this, which includes the protection of parks and protected areas, we need to understand what the word park or protected area even means in different countries, in different contexts. And that's what Ye is all about. It's just to give you the opportunity to work with people. And yes, we're very US-centric because of our funding source and sort of stuck with that for now. Um, but at least get you to think about that, wow, this means something different in a different culture. So you can't separate out clean water from education in some cultures. And we kind of get that, but you can't separate out education from fisheries in some cultures. And we don't always get that. And I think that's what Ye is about. It's trying to help students get that, that in different countries, you can't separate out their education from no hunger, from access to protein from fisheries. But in the U.S., we do. We separate those. We don't think about fisheries as anything to do with our education system. Because if you go to school hungry, you can't learn. And if your primary source of protein is fish and you lose fisheries, you go to school hungry and you can't learn. You know, so I think it's just that thinking through those processes at a worldwide set. So that was a very long answer. So let Sarah jump in. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll just say, um, kind of echoing what Gillian just touched on, um, you know, seeing the action of, you know, international negotiations and seeing negotiators discuss the IPCC reports, for instance, is transformative um, experience for, I would say, anyone. Um, but for me, when I was able to see that for the first time, you know, there were just so many kind of emotions and thoughts and going back to that motivational aspect, um, kind of like the why you are engaged in a discipline like environmental science, um, seeing that firsthand and, and um, feeling the emotions and, and so forth tied to those types of no negotiations is, I would say, quite an aha. And I think it's amazing that Gillian as you know, the lead PI on, on the YAG grant, as well as all the other institutions involved in this project are, um, you know, doing the students quite the, the service and providing such a, uh, an amazing opportunity to see those experiences and feel it and understand it um, firsthand um, so that you can be motivated to, you know, engage in that space yourself. And so um, I guess I'm just very appreciative of all the opportunities that YAH has provided um, myself thus far and, and will be forever grateful of that. 
Um, and I think there's only room to grow as to how many more students we can get engaged in this space um, to really make a difference when it comes to climate action and the science degrees that students are currently um, engaged in, but maybe don't know how to act on, um, you know, long term. This was the first of a two-part series exploring the YAY network and global partnerships. In the next episode, Dr. Bowser and Sarah explain how everyday people can get involved and how they found a passion for environmental science. If you'd like to learn more about sustainable development, please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and on your favorite social media platforms. And now we want to end with these wise words from Sarah Whipple. I think in order to do something with this this space um, coming you know stepping away from all the doom and gloom that we see on the media or um, you know coming out of the IPCC reports and scientifically sound um, evidence that is I think inundating our, our lives these days and make it really hard to see the hope and the optimism is um, what we need to to work on in order to engage in this space in a more proactive and productive way and you know it's amazing to see the fire that is ignited within so many youth across the world um, coming from different um, cultural heritage heritages as as Gillian said and you know uh, recognizing that what may be a climate issue in in one country um could be a totally different circumstance in another. And so I think coming to the table and thinking towards those solutions rather than the the doom and gloom that is, you know, amongst us and, and only getting worse is going to be all the more critical, um, you know, moving forward in order to get stuff done and to, you know, motivate people to continue fighting for this change and, you know, continue climate striking and whatever it may be um, in order to feel like you make a difference. So I think that's what I like about Yeah so much is the solution-oriented approach to these issues that um, we all know are amongst us, but we need to actually act on in order to see that change. The Yeah Network is just getting started. If you'd like to get involved, go to yeah-net.org. Thanks a bunch.